We all want to be with people who are going to make a difference in the world, lay out a path to get there. Let's call that strategy. And then have the wherewithal, the, the temperament. They can shake hands. They can inspire you by the way they speak of the future to get the job done with them. In other words, you also want that leadership piece to be hand-in-hand with strategy. You're listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. Welcome to another episode of the podcast, The Business of Thought Leadership. I'm your co-host, Nikki Ballou. And I'm your other co-host, Michael Palmer. And boy, have we got an awesome episode lined up for you today. The guest on the show today is a very accomplished and extraordinary gentleman. His name is Michael Usim. He is a professor at Wharton Business School. And in fact, he is the William and Jacqueline Egan Professor of Management. He is the author of the brand new book, Strategic Leadership. And this gentleman, in addition to being a professor, has done incredible consulting with large organizations such as Cargill, the New York Times, the United Nations, Estee Lauder, American Express, and a whole host of other fantastic companies. And his expertise is in the area of strategy, leadership, and corporate governance. Welcome to the show, Mike. Thank you very much. I'm very pleased to be here. Well, we're really pleased to have you. So, Mike, this show is called The Business of Thought Leadership. So as interested as folks are in your specific expertise, they're equally interested in how you've used that expertise in a commercial way. So in addition Mm -hmm. to being a professor, you have done a whole bunch of amazing consulting engagements. Could you tell us a little bit about your backstory, how you came to be where you're at today? Sure. Well, the Wharton School goes back to 1881, believe it or not. Joseph Wharton, a steelmaker, made a gift to a university that actually Benjamin Franklin created back in 1741. And our charter from both Benjamin Franklin and Joseph Wharton is essentially to take, develop, and then use knowledge for practical problem solving. And with that, we take that heritage seriously here. And in working in particular, now to get back to the particular focus of this book, the last several years, several colleagues and I each separately teaching courses on competitive strategy in one case, uh, leadership development in another case, came to appreciate through working with companies and talking with many people and just looking at so much research that's out there that if you're going to run a startup, if you're going to be responsible for a division of a hospital or a community foundation or whatever it might be, you really have to think strategically separately, you have to lead effectively. Hmm. And what we seek to do in this particular uh, book-length argument is make the case that you really need both. They need to be integrated. I can spell that out in a few minutes. And I'll put it uh, a little bit upside down here. For listeners, my guess is they've worked with a leader who is unstrategic and you kind of floundered. Great person, love to be with the person, but not clear where we're going. Or 
people have probably worked with a great strategist, but when it came to the interpersonal side of how that person related to you or the kind of inspiration they created among many people around you, they were kind of a dud. So to put that more affirmatively, it's a pretty obvious point as soon as I say it. We all want to be with people who are going to make a difference in the world, lay out a path to get there. Let's call that strategy. And then have the wherewithal, the the temperament. They can shake hands. They can inspire you by the way they speak of the future to get the job done with them. In other words, you also want that leadership piece to be hand-in-hand hand with strategy. Wow. That's profoundly put. So how did you come up with the idea for your latest book? Well, we kind of do a little backstory on my own setting. We in our school have uh, over 5,500 undergraduate and MBA students, and we reach close to 10,000 mid-career people, like many of your listeners, every year. And in offering separate programs or coursework on competitive strategy, let's say that's the A-track, and then leadership and management, that's the B-track, a kind of separate coursework. We concluded, I concluded, along with my colleague Harbir Singh, that we were really doing a, a disservice or we weren't optimizing what people really want to come out of a class or a program with, which is a feel for how do you, how do you work out a company's strategy? How do you see ahead? How do you detect faint signals that a market is changing or a disruptor is coming your direction. And then, okay, once you've appreciated where you got to get to and how you're going to get there, uh, let's make it Netflix that was also looking at Blockbuster. Netflix concluded correctly, as it turns out, then that video streaming was going to overtake sooner or later the mailing of DVDs through the U.S. postal system. And with that, though, that's only halfway there, and we realized this from our coursework that this was only halfway there, because then you've got to have people on high and in the middle ranks who can actually make things happen and take those ideas and get people excited about getting there. And thus, that's the leadership piece. And I think in business or community affairs or you're running a city or whatever it might be, you really need both. And so we, we offered a six-point roadmap for grabbing them both. And we try to illustrate that combination very tangibly through the lives of others to make the case for it. So it's an interesting concept. And in your journeys and, and teachings and exploring throughout the different ranks of leadership and all these organizations all over the world, what have you seen from leaders? You know, you mentioned the two two versions, right? It's one, hey, we like this guy. He doesn't really know where he's going. And the other one, hey, this guy knows where he's going, but he's a dud. Where Have you, have you seen people be able to make the shift, the wholesale shift, yep. one way or the other? It's a really good question because in our view, we, we see thinking strategically as a learnable skill set. We, we aren't born with five-year insight on where the future is going, let's say, in technology. We have to learn that. Same thing is true on leadership. We have a phrase, you know it, I know it. We sometimes say an individual is a natural-born leader. And it seems there are a few people in our universe that fit that description, Nelson Mandela probably among them. But for virtually everybody, 
leadership is an acquired skill. And we could talk about some of the avenues in a minute, but the bigger point or the kind of the wraparound point is that you can learn how to be strategic. You can learn how to be a leader. It's hard work. It's like 10,000 hours to learn how to play the violin well. But with that and then combine, you are going to be more likely to get to where you're going. And if I can just offer a very brief illustration to make that more tangible, we open our book with an account of a person that most people have never heard of, Carlos Ghosn, odd last name by way of spellings, G-H-O-S-N, but it's pronounced Ghosn. Yeah, and he is Brazilian, was living in Paris, France, working for Renault, the big French auto company, when Renault uh, decided to put close to $4 billion into the Japanese automaker Nissan quite some time ago now when Nissan was just about to go off a cliff and fail. Its models were languishing. It didn't have an SUV when everybody else was putting SUVs for the first time into the market, deeply in debt. The preceding top people or the people who were at Nissan at the time before Carlos Ghosn emerged on the scene, they appreciated that their company needed a strategic redirection. So they were strategic, Hmm. but they couldn't bring themselves to actually make the changes, feared people would flee or those uh, forced to change. Some people might quit. So they kind of balked at closing unproductive plants, uh, balked at forcing their designers to come out with new models. Carlos Ghosn was sent by Renault to be the number two person at Nissan, soon became number one. And he took a company that had a strategy for a turnaround. It just lacked a leader who could actually turn it around. And in the next uh, several years, remade Nissan. And just by way of a quick statistic that makes the bottom line success very evident, when he took over back in 1999, Nissan was something like 4.5% of the world market in auto sales. Today, he still runs it many, many years later. He's chief executive of Nissan. And by the way, also Renault, at the very same time he commutes between Paris and Tokyo. Nissan today is up around 8.5% of the world auto market. And of course, we sell a lot more cars these days. So that's in absolute numbers way, way up. And Nissan's considered now one of the great performing automakers out there, either number four or five in the world after companies like uh, Toyota and so on. And what did it take? Well, it took a strategy for a turnaround, closing ineffective plants, coming out with more attractive models, working with suppliers to cut uh, the cost of input materials and the like. And it took a person who was a great listener, an inspirational figure. We spent time with him. He's quite a, quite an inspiration. And thus, there's the formula. Strategy plus leadership made the difference. Amazing. Amazing, amazing stuff. So how have you personally, Mike, used your expertise and your positioning to help get you all these fantastic consulting opportunities with some iconic companies? Well, my main engagement with companies is to come in typically as part of one of their management or leadership development programs, although I've worked with companies directly. 
And my particular method, whether it's a longer-term relationship or a very short-term leadership development program engagement, is to take concepts like the ones we've been talking with and then offer a, a graphic grounding of those ideas in somebody's experience that we can relate to or imagine we were actually part of. So case in point, I came to know the person, actually several people who were directly involved in the rescue of the 33 miners in Chile a couple of years ago. Many listeners will remember that the 33 miners were trapped below the surface of a, ma- a mine in Chile. They were stuck for a couple of months, uh, harrowing conditions, but they were brought to the surface a couple of months after they were trapped. And I've spent time with the Minister of Mines in Chile. I've spent time with the President of Chile talking through with them how do they actually effect this amazing rescue of these 33 miners. And one point has really stayed with me from that direct engagement. And of course, I've looked at lots of records and there's a pretty good press on what happened down there, lots in the public domain. From my discussions with the president and the minister of mines and uh, others involved in the rescue, and we say this in our book, to be a strategic leader, you need to understand that you can't do it yourself as a strategic leader. You need, we call it layered leadership. You need you need it yourself, you need it above you, and you need people below you to be strategic and effective a leadership at the same time. So case in point, here it is, and I've used this with uh, in many, many settings to make the bigger point. The 33 miners were trapped on August 5th back in 2010, half a mile below the surface. And when they were trapped, this huge mining shaft system caved in or was fractured almost all the way up to the very top such that rescue crews literally couldn't even walk into the mine entry, let alone get to this stranded miners. But in the meantime, with that circumstance being what it was, here are the three layers. A shift supervisor, the, the key person among the 33 responsible, pretty quickly organized with some help from some others, the miners to stay alive under incredibly difficult conditions. Almost no food, 97 degrees, 24 hours a day, drinking water, but not great water, and just extremely harsh and harrowing conditions. And, of course, there'd be nobody to rescue if he didn't keep them alive, and he was a strategic leader in doing that. Meanwhile, on the surface, 2,000 and some feet above, the minister of mines, who normally works in the capital city of Santiago, had moved, took up residence along with um, 2,400 reporters, by the way, who came to cover what was happening, and he working through just a host of unbelievably complex technical drilling questions, was able to get a shaft down to the miners, which would have been useless if the miners had not been kept alive by the leadership and strategy of the shift supervisor. But they could have lived on for any number of months, but if the shaft weren't placed there by the man on the surface, Lawrence Goldborn is his name, Minister of Mines, Uh, they would never have come out either. But there's a third layer to the uh, the story, and that is the equipment that was deployed 
to get the shafts down 20, almost half a mile below the surface. Much of it actually came from the U.S. And to bring that equipment down, believe it or not, the president of Chile, his name is Sebastian Piñera, called the U.S. White House and said in Pennsylvania, uh, there are a couple drilling companies that have the kind of extremely fast and accurate drills that we don't have, but we need now. Uh, Last time I called the White House, I didn't get a call back very quickly, or maybe not at all, but the White House called back in an hour and said, we got it for you. UPS is going to deliver it for free to you. And so the third layer here now is the president of the country who is working the phones to get the drills that Lawrence Goldborn could then drill to then reach this uh, Luis Ozuro is his name, the shift supervisor, Without the strategy and the act of leadership, the effective leadership of all three, those 33 miners would not have come to the surface. And again, referencing our listeners, more than a billion people watched at least one of those miners pop up to the surface in a little capsule. I'm among them. You probably are too. Uh, It's one of the most viewed events in world history along with the World Cup final in soccer or football, as they would call it, (laughs) in Brazil. And how did that uh, come about? Well, I've often used that account just to remind people you're not going to be in that kind of a crisis, hopefully ever. But you can see so clearly there the power of having a strategy for success and a leadership method then to make it happen. It's so important. We can see it there. I hope hope then people are going to walk out of the room and say, boy, I appreciate now that much more that I've got to be strategic in thought and leader in action. It's a great story. And I I sit here thinking, what was it that had them possess those skills and abilities and, and uh, the, the ability to get that job done. Like, was it their culture of their country? Like, what, yep. would, would we expect to have the same outcome if it was in the United States or Canada that or goes, somewhere else? Yeah, no, it's, it goes to just like the really fundamental question here, which is how exactly do we get a hold of some of this, uh, some of these ideas or these methods? And we've given a lot of thought to that. Many university researchers have asked the question. Many consulting firms have been at this for many decades. And institutions like the U.S. Military Academy at West Point, U.S. Naval Academy at Annapolis, Maryland, have been worried about this for 200 years in the case of West Point because they are trying to develop – think about that. They're trying to develop uh, leaders of the U.S. Army going ahead in the decades. And how do we take people who are, in their case, cadets age 18 coming into that academy or midshipmen at Annapolis age 18 – And in 15 or 20 years, these are people who are going to be, in the case of uh, naval officers, are going to be up on the bridge of an aircraft carrier. Army officers are going to be responsible for the events inside Iraq or Afghanistan. And here are the three main avenues. Sorry about the long preface there, but here are the three main methods, if you will, very down-to-earth if you commit yourself to becoming more strategic and to becoming a stronger leader around that set of objectives defined by the strategy. Number one, and I'm going to give the three avenues 
uh, and ordering are going to be from least to most important. Number one is, and here's the phrasing, is to become a lifelong self-directed student of leadership. That means a lot of things on the ground. You like to pick up biographies or you watch the History Channel if you don't like, like to read a whole lot. But you watch, uh, uh, just look around you. You watch people come and go. You watch presidential candidates sometimes stub a toe, sometimes succeed in the campaign. You've had bosses that have been great, some that are terrible. If you treat everyone as a learning opportunity and are self-conscious about that, uh, the net effect is you become better at it. That's the least important, though, of the three avenues. It's significant. I advocate it. But even more powerfully formative for, for you, for me, for people listening, is to bring in several people who will act as informal advisors, as mentors, as personal coaches. And I've talked with oh, hundreds of people now about their coaches or their mentors, uh, who they are, what effect, of, what effect they've had. And almost everybody says, I've had a couple. They were fundamentally in, in, fundamental in, in helping me become the person I am because they gave me private, offline, fine-grained feedback on my unrealized potential. They knew I could do more, and they could see what was blocking me from doing more. That's the second avenue. The third avenue, unequivocally the most important, the most powerfully effective in terms of learning, is to get it down to kind of basics. Get out there, get into the game, take responsibility, hopefully again and again with a little bit more responsibility in your portfolio, and then act, decide. You're going to make some mistakes, hopefully not the same one more than once, but with each experience like that, if you then step back and use a device called the after-action review where you self-consciously look at what you've done with a vow to getting better the next time you do it, this unequivocally learning by doing is the avenue. So in the case of the Minister of Mines in Chile, in the case of Carlos Ghosn at Nissan, we chronicle Indra Nui at Pepsi, we look at John Chambers who beat, built uh, Cisco, we look in politics, uh, it's almost everywhere that you see these three avenues, or to put that differently to make a graphic, and I'll stop on this. Next time you run into somebody who's carried responsibility, uh, just ask them offline, <clears throat> how do they get from being the person they were at age 10 and fifth grade to who they are now? Like, How did they learn to become a U.S. senator, for example, or the leader of a, of a community hospital? And I almost can guarantee you that all three of those avenues are going to be referenced when they give the answer. You're absolutely right. And we, we actually had, uh, we haven't published the podcast yet, but we had Commander Chris Hadfield, who's a, a very famous Canadian astronaut and was the chief of the International Space Station. I don't know what they call it, a chief or... Head, head of the International Space head, head of the International. And it's, it, you're bang on. It's, uh, it's remarkable stories that he tells, but it's from from doing doing it, being a lifelong learner, being passionate about what he was doing, and and just looking forward, really. Yeah, and I want to underscore a couple of words you used there. I think 
passion in the best sense of that phrase is really important. I, we didn't really reference that along the way, but it's so it's vital for book. people to really want to do what they're doing. <laughs> so I honest. And then the other phrase you used right on, um, certainly hit the money in that one, and that is becoming a lifelong learner. So glad to know that that person on the space station uh, got to it that way. And I think that's the way most of us need to do it. Yeah, you should definitely uh, connect with uh, Commander Chris Hadfield. You two would, would have a lot to talk about around leadership. It's, uh, he's a remarkable man. Well, I'd love to do that for a still related reason here, and that is I'm at a business school, but we have worked we have worked with American astronauts. We've worked uh, with uh, some companies in Canada. We've worked with our military academy here, the equivalent in Canada, and Again, this is many of these people are not in business, but we know, and I think you know, that sometimes by looking outside your own area, it is amazing the kind of insights that come then back to what you're doing in your own area. So we're not going to be on a space station, at least I wish I were, but I'm not going to be up there, I think, near term. But in conversation with that astronaut, uh, I would love to have it. We learn ever so much more what's critical at home by looking far away from our own setting. It's a be- I think it's a, it's a very interesting connection because his book was an astronaut's guide to, guide life, to on life on Earth. Yeah. Right? <laughs> so along the same lines, right? It's like, hey, I'm up here looking down and, you know, the different perspectives. But he's a really interesting fellow in that, I mean, he's done crazy things in his life, test pilot, mm. you know, driving spaceships, all that good stuff. But he's also an artist. He plays music and he's into social media and... It's a very interesting story and how he's brought a lot of attention back to to space and to the space uh, uh, exploration in Canada anyways. Well, it makes a great point along the way. And I'm going to pick up on that with my own illustration. I'll make the point. We bring in people from the world of professional sports. We bring in people who stood on the summit of Mount Everest. Hmm. We bring in people who have led big firefighting crews into the wilderness. And again, it couldn't be further away from certainly where our students, many from Canada, are heading uh, career-wise. But like the astronaut bringing the experience up there down to Earth, as we have heard, for example, a person who summited Mount Everest just a couple of months ago had him come in uh, and talk about what it took to build a high-performing team where everybody depended upon everybody else for their life, it was such a compelling reminder of what is vital right down here at low altitude at sea level. So uh, we've become very, and I hear it in your voice too, strong advocates of looking at people who, by the insight they've got into their own world that's different from ours, can help us really appreciate what's important right here at home. Yeah, absolutely. Well said, well said. Well, Mike, we like to end off our episodes with our guests by asking them to share with our listener their three top expert action steps that they recommend our listener take on as a thought leader or an aspiring thought leader for properly positioning themselves out there in the marketplace. What are yours? Yeah, so number one, becoming a self-directed, lifelong student 
of both strategy and leadership. Strategy, it's a fancy word. Consultants use it for good reason. But just think of it as, let's be really self-conscious where we're going to go and how we're going to get there. That's a learned skill set. I guess my number two then would be separately to work on your own ability to be a persuasive communicator, a decisive decision maker. Uh, Those and another half dozen qualities like that, vital to lead people. And then number three, got to put them together. This is what Carlos Ghosn did in uh, the case of bringing Nissan around. And I'm going to end on this note. This is what the leader of the 1953 famous, most famous mountaineering expedition ever, the British expedition to Mount Everest Mm. applied, which was a strategy to get to the top. And then they brought in an expedition leader, a man named John Hunt, who worked with Ed Hillary of New Zealand, Tenzing Norgay of Nepal and India. And number of players here, I won't um, add any more names than I've already got in front of us, but they were thinking strategically and they were leading as well. And the result was a little bit before noon, May 29th, 1953, Ed Hillary and Tenzing Norgay took an historic step to be the first two people to step on the top of the highest summit in the world. And what did it take? Well, it took great strategy and a leadership to go with it. Amazing, 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 amazing. Great, great, great insights. So listen, tell us a little bit about the book and uh, where people can go to pick up a copy. Sure, it's a short book. We made this one very short because we wanted it to be readable and consumable in short order. It's called The Strategic Leader's Roadmap. Subtitle says a little bit more what it's about. Six Steps for Integrating Leadership and Strategy. My co-author is Harbir Singh, S-I-N-G-H. And you can pick it up um, via the web by going to Wharton Digital Press or Amazon. And love to have you take a look at the book. Our email address is out there. Love to correspond with people that have got a thought or two from the book or thinking about this topic more generally. That's fantastic. Great. Mike, thank you for uh, taking the time to be on the show with us. It was absolutely fantastic. Thank you for having me on the show. I loved our discussion. Thanks very much. You bet. Thanks, Mike. So long. Bye-bye. 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 So, Michael, we are about to showcase another fabulous person in our Success Leaves Clues segment today, Tracy Evans. Yeah, you know, Tracy's one of those clients that makes our job magical, really, because she helps leaders learn the ancient language of horses, which is amazing. You're working with these majestic animals and helping transform lives through working with these animals. So she's one of those ones that I just, I just, every time I speak to her, I just love hearing the stories and the work that she does. Yeah. And you know, what? what's especially powerful about Tracy and her story, Michael, is that Tracy had been working with horses for quite some time. When she came and she started working with us and with the community, really helped her get a lot of clarity around how she could position her message so that the people that really needed to hear it the most could hear it and and benefit from the work she could do for them. 
And Tracy's just a pistol and a firecracker. She's been getting some incredible results. So I'm excited for this segment. Let's, let's get her on and let's get rocking, okay? Let's go to that segment. Hi, Tracy. It's Nikki Ballou from eCircle Academy and the Business of Thought Leadership Podcast. How are you? Hey, Nikki. I'm doing great. Thanks. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fantastic. Hey, Tracy. Michael, Michael, yeah, Michael's Hi, Michael. here with you. So, um, Tracy, it's been quite a journey, eh? It sure has. <laughs> yeah. So listen, you know, just for the benefit of our listener, would you tell them a little bit about yourself, a little bit about your company and what you do and who you serve and all that good stuff? Sure. Uh, after about nearly 20 years in the corporate world, I had tired of the daily grind and about 10 years before I left it, I discovered the magic of horses. I had never had the opportunity to ride as a child. I had always loved horses, but never took up the, the sport and decided I needed to find a passion as I was just grinding it away in my corporate job. And when I took that first lesson, my life was transformed. I couldn't get enough of it. But more importantly, when I finally bought my first horse, which was only within eight months of that first lesson, I bought a five-year-old thoroughbred off the track who was pretty high-spirited, and I needed to kind of figure him out in order to be safe and successful with him in the saddle. And what I learned uh, through a horsemanship clinic that I took was just how much he needed a leader. And I couldn't believe how much I learned from that clinic that related so much to my work life. Quite frankly, the horses are looking for the same kind of leadership that we are. And in learning their language and understanding what they need, it really allowed me to transform my leadership in my corporate world. And I went on throughout my organization. I was promoted. And finally, uh, just before I left, I was vice president of marketing for a global financial institution. But I also realized at that point that I was not fulfilling my passion and I wanted to do something meaningful. So I decided to leave that and bring this learning and bring this magic of horses to other leaders and help transform teams and help them be successful and drive the results that their teams are capable of. So when you were still working for that global financial institution, uh, who shall remain nameless, but uh, <laughs> I wasn't sure if I was supposed to name you, them or not. You can, you can totally name them. Their, their slogan is don't leave home without it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> <laughs> American something, right? <laughs> so uh, <laughs> these, you know, well, you were there and you did your program with horses initially. That had a pretty transformative effect in terms of your own leadership with your team and, and on the team and its performance, right? Speak a little bit about that. For sure. So I introduced the concept to my team while I was there. And we've obviously, we've run a number of corporate uh, team building events and leadership events here at DreamWinds. What's, what's so amazing about the work that we do with the horses is people are just very they're exposed. Obviously, they're a little bit out of their comfort zone, um, but it really forces them to self-reflect and understand what works and what doesn't work when you're trying to get the cooperation and engagement of a team member. And ultimately, our horses are just part of their team. As herd animals, they're looking for trust. They're looking for consistency, clear communication, empathy, authenticity. You cannot lie to a horse. <laughs> you can't make things up. <laughs> They'll call you out on it. And the beautiful part about it is, is along the way, they're feeding back messages and information to let you know what's working and what's not. So what I see when our teams go through this is that they get to transform their behavior from beginning to end in right there, right in front of us, because it's all experiential. And they get to see the benefits of what happens when you get it right. So when they transform and they change the way they communicate, when they start to understand what impact they're having on other people and on this horse, they start to refine how they work together and they see huge results. 
You know, all our exercises are objective-based, so they're solving problems, they're communicating, they're building trust, they're building connections. And we've seen organizations, you know, really change how they work together. Uh, we get some companies coming year after year, bringing different levels of leaders and different levels of, um, of uh, and different departments to really help spread that learning and change their culture. And that's my goal, ultimately, is to help organizations change culture so that people can look forward to going to work every day. We all know the statistics on people leaving organizations because they're leaving their leaders. And I'd like to see that uh, minimized in the long term. Before you complete this particular thought, speak, speak to me a little bit in terms of the specific results that teams get once they've gone through this, because I know that this has a powerful impact on their performance out there in the world and on their ability to work together cohesively and make their leaders' life easier. Absolutely. I'll give you an example of one one team that we worked with. That'd probably be easier from because it was quite an extreme case as well. We worked with an agency that was 50% IT and 50% marketing. Mm. And, uh, you know, we often joke about how sales and marketing can be like oil and water. Well, you should see IT and marketing work together. <laughs> <laughs> I get it. Different languages, like truly, very, they speak different languages and they have different they have different goals in a lot of cases. I mean, they all know what the end goal needs to be, but how they there is so vastly different. And this organization was in growth mode. So they brought their entire team to us, both the IT side and the marketing side. And our objective was to get them to really connect. And and that's kind of the big, one of the differentiators in our program as well is not only are we changing sort of behavior, like how they communicate, how they understand each other, but we're helping them connect on a different level. So these guys were just sort of in their silos and used to working, you know, independently and projects would pass between the two, but they wouldn't necessarily connect and work together on it. What we were able to do with that organization, and we also worked with them a little bit on a new restructuring of the, of the team so that their process flows would be better. That was sort of a side project before they came to work with the horses. But our focus there was really building trust and breaking down those communication barriers. And where the big aha moments came for this group was that understanding of what each other needed. So where we see this, and we see this in almost every team that comes, there are, it's, there's very little awareness and acknowledgement of what, when we're communicating with people, what that person needs. We're so focused on what we need to say and how we need to say it, but we're not considering what they need to hear. Mm. And we see vast differences in how people process things, the amount of information, the details, and for them to be able to cross that barrier and and be able to really communicate effectively, they have to start to understand that they don't, everyone doesn't talk the same way. And that was a big breakthrough for them. In our final exercise of the day, they had to actually plan an exercise themselves and and facilitate the other group through it. So they had put together huge exercises and obstacles that mimicked their work process and then took the other teams through it. And it was amazing to see how well that connected back to their work life. So they could make those connections and say, you know what, what we're doing here is actually going to translate when we get out of here, which is huge. And then I also were able to really have a new respect for each other, which was missing when they came. And that's the feedback we got from that team, uh, even going forward. We also get a lot of feedback from teams where they will bring up what happened in our arena in meetings, you know, three, six, nine, 12 months down the road because of the lesson that they learned. You know, we had one group that was, they were stuck in an obstacle. They were trying to get across a raised rail and they had the horse and there were five of them linked together. 
and they couldn't figure it out. And the horse kept knocking the rail down and they kept putting the rail back up (laughs) and saying, oh, Jimmy, you know, and they must have done it four or five times before they realized that their team member, the horse, had a pretty good idea. <laughs> a whole lot easier to walk across a rail when it's on the ground than when it's raised up. And that that simple message went with them and still continues with them. This is a group, uh, they they come back every single year and uh, they always, somebody there has always been, you know, there's always a connection to someone who's been before and they always relay that Jimmy story. And it's such a powerful message because we don't always consider the opinions of everyone on our team. And that was a core issue for them. So those are some of the types of things that we help teams overcome. But understanding how one another needs to be communicated to is probably one of the most profound impacts we have because we've seen teams just get so stuck in how they're telling each other and how they're working together that they can't move past it. And when they finally realize, well, this person actually can't move forward until we give him infinite detail and he's getting information from high level, you know, a high level snippet, they then start to realize, no, he actually just can't function with that little information. They need, he needs more. And that's been a big, that's been a big game changer for a lot of our teams. Wow, it's a remarkable work that you do and transformational work. It's, uh, you know, Jimmy. Jimmy is an amazing uh, teacher of language and communication. But your message is transformational. The work that you do is incredible. But getting that out and having customers show up is not always as easy as we all know. Tell us a little bit about your struggles getting into business and actually doing this work. Yeah. I mean, when I first opened my own business, as you can imagine, I was a T4 girl. I had been uh, in the corporate world for a long time, so didn't know a lot about being an entrepreneur and uh, did very, I think did quite well in my first uh, three and a half, four years. But I had gotten to a point, particularly on my corporate business, my, my EAL certification business had thrived. You know, I had my youth business was doing well in personal development, but I really wanted to focus on my corporate business because I just know so passionately that this is an area I can make a profound change in organizations. And corporate Canada is my goal. And I was really struggling to grow that because, you know, we had steady groups coming through, but it could be more. I want to do more. And I was really struggling with my message and kind of feeling like, you know, my sales tactics and my sales skills are lacking. And I really need that encouragement and some guidance on how I'm going to, you know, transform the way I'm doing that corporate business so I can reach more people and uh, get more people in the door. Excellent. And that's where I was when I came to eCircle. Yeah, that's right. Well, maybe share a little bit because you've done some remarkable things since we've worked together. And I have to say, it's been a pleasure working with you and I love horses and I love the work that you're doing. So share a little bit of of the things that you've done differently now and uh, how that's working out for you. Well, even right from the very first immersion that I joined before I signed on for the coaching program, the first immersion was really helpful for me in helping to refine my message and really recognizing what I what I offer and uh, and what I can deliver to the world and and helping me to refine how I talk about that. This was a big gap for me. And, you know, we've made even more strides, as you know, since immersion in terms of really being clear about the value of my horses in the corporate business. But even more so, like that message is coming along and my, I, you know, I have had a number of proposals go out since the immersion, which I'm very excited about and looking to land most, if not all of those. 
But one of the other uh, kind of side things is part of my business that was doing really well um, exploded since the immersion. Like truly, I had my best quarter. And this is where I teach other facilitators how to do this. And I'm so passionate about it because I know how this course transformed my life and allowed me to do something I love. And I want to bring that to other horse lovers and passionate um, people in the world as well. And I have, you know, just really had such tremendous growth. I, you know, I've cleared over 50,000 since I, since I left the immersion, which is just a great, a great quarter for me on that particular product. And I've seen growth in every other area, uh, including, uh, some large youth opportunities that are coming my way that have contracts attached annually and different speaking engagements, as well as again, more corporate programs. So I think just, there's been so much I've learned through the through the e-circle, but even just putting the focus on it and the accountability and getting my mind in the right space just to continue to drive my business forward has really been transformational for me. Yeah, it's, it's great. And uh, it's been a real pleasure watching you get these results. And I think a lot of people struggle with message because they're trying to sell mm-hmm. to everybody. The, the message is very generic. And, and, and in a lot of cases, they don't even really know what it is that they're selling and the real value and core essence of that message of what people need to see in here. And when you started to get that right and put it into your messaging and your conversations, people are just running to you because they know exactly what it is you do for them and how their life will transform as a result of it. So we love helping people get that clear and make that, make that difference in the business and then watching you actually do the work and make it happen and see the results. Magical. Love it. Well, I can't thank you guys enough. I'm really, I'm really so grateful for the support. And, uh, you know, I've only been in it, what, three months. So I can't imagine what the next rest of the year is going to bring for me. I'm very excited for 2017. Actually, Tracy, you've only been at two months. <laughs> yeah. Oh, was it only two? <laughs> Holy cow. Yep. It was October 10th wow. till today. And by the time this goes out, obviously it'll be, it'll probably be sometime in 2017, but it's actually been two months. Yes. You've, you've done incredible. Your results have been over the top. It's been a real honor and a privilege to, to be part of your journey to make the difference you were born to make. And thank you for being uh, with us today on the segment Success Leaves Clues. Have a great day, Tracy. Thank you very much. You guys have a great day too. Take care. That wraps another episode of the Business of Thought Leadership podcast and our Success Leaves Clues segment with Tracy Evans. If you'd like to learn more about Tracy, please go to our website, thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. You'll find all the information and links to Tracy's website. As well, you can find out more about the program that she mentioned that Nikki and I run. Uh, We'd love for you to take a look at that. And lastly... On Facebook, The Business of Thought Leadership, there is a private group. Search for that. Come join thought leaders like yourself and Tracy Evans to engage and build your thought leadership. We'll see you there. Until next time, goodbye. You've been listening to The Business of Thought Leadership with Nikki Ballou and Michael Palmer. For more information and to download the resources mentioned in this episode, please visit us at thebusinessofthoughtleadership.com. Thank you for listening.